It's go time. Welcome, everyone, to Third Down Gamble. Don Charbon along with Heath Graham. It's our 150th episode, a little bit of a milestone for us. First and foremost, judgment for judge. The CFL has handed out a one-game suspension for Calgary Stampeders linebacker Cameron Judge for some would call a sucker punch on Lions receiver Lucky Whitehead after the game. And according to many reports, when the teams were leaving the building, there was still some more agitation going on out in the parking lot. This is quite out of character for Cam Judge. He is not known really as a player that loses his discipline on the field. Uh, A bit surprising. I think one game is warranted given the information that we have seen so far. A little bit unfortunate in that the suspension costs him the one game in the rematch against the BC Lions. It's always good for that rivalry to have everybody involved, but maybe as far as a discipline issue in this forthcoming game, it's better that Cameron Judge has a week on the sidelines and not in the lineup. Judge will not appeal. He would not discuss further what was said and that there are allegations flying around that Lucky Whitehead said something disparaging with reference to Judge's family. Now, whether it was his parentage, whether it was his current family, I'm not. Point is, is that Judge was reacting. Now he admits that using his fist let the team down, and that's why he's not appealing the suspension. That, to me, shows a sign of honor that, hey, I did something wrong. I'm taking my punishment. So he's showing some class, even though what he did wasn't necessarily epitomizing that in the first place. You're right. Cameron Judge, not noted for this, hasn't had a history of this, not the type of person that we would expect to be caught up in this, does take the high road and says, look, I did what I did. I'm I'm accepting of this uh, punishment being meted out. Definitely the high road for Cameron Judge. It was nice to see. Oftentimes when a player gets involved in something like this, there's the the immediate act of denial, whereas he has gone straight to owning what he has done, how it is affecting his team, and, and really just, as you said, he's taking his punishment. He's moving on. The team is moving on. There's no appeals involved. Football's an emotional game, and from time to time, the action on the field seems to spill over. Very unusual for this to continue on into the parking lot after the game. This must have been very heated. So, um, as I mentioned earlier, Cameron Judge will not be part of the rematch, but there could be some high emotions in this coming game, and I believe it will be up to the officials to really set the tone in this one and not let things get out of hand. We have seen in the past, sometimes they're hesitant to throw a flag and it might be a situation early on in the game where they start to call some misconduct penalties if there's even an inkling that things are going to get chippy. For those of you who do not know how McMahon's stadium is constructed, at the south end of the stadium, you have both team locker rooms and just to the south of those locker rooms are places for the players to park. So as the Lions would be coming out of one side, the Stampeders would be coming to their cars. There's the place where you could have a meeting of the minds, as it were, and an opportunity for them to discuss further what happened during the game. It's 
just a function of the stadium. It's just the way it happens to be. Very rare that anything ever happens as a result of that uh, design. The question as to whether the officials need to clamp down on this, I always shudder when I think that an official has to clamp down on what the players are doing from a previous game. Why doesn't it befall the coaches? Why doesn't it befall the team leaders, the captains, to say, look, that's happened. We're not proud of it. Let's be better. Let's go forward. Oh, I agree with you 100%. I believe that's the message that will be coming from the, the coaching staff and the leaders on the teams. Once the game starts, as I mentioned, emotions can run high. And I believe it's just the officials need to stay on top of it. it they, I don't think they need to create a situation where they feel like they're taking over the game. They just can't let stuff go that is close to the line. They need to be on, on top of things. If it is a, a misconduct, objectionable conduct, anything that's close, they need to be on top of it. I, I don't want anybody to think that I'm campaigning for the officials to, to take over the game before it even starts or to, to try to create drama or create a, a false sense of penalties that aren't there. But if it's there, they need to get to make the call and keep things moving forward. I would say it's incumbent upon the officials to give the players the latitude that they deserve coming into any game, but just have it in the back of their minds that there is this powder keg looming and that perhaps if you were wavering on giving a call for the same offense in the past, you might look at saying to the player one more time, that's going to do it for tonight. Even though it may not raise to the level, you're getting close enough that it isn't going to matter anymore. And under those circumstances, yes, officials can uh, impact a game. I don't think it's their will nor their desire. They want to be as seamless as possible in terms of how they perform their duties and also unseen. If you don't hear an official's name during a game, typically they've done fairly well because a, they've been lucky nothing really has happened in their area, or B, they've called a very good game. And, and this is the ultimate hope of any official, is that no one remembers that you were even there. We have two teams in the CFL that are befuddled as to why things are happening the way they are. The Edmonton Elks, again, prove that the road is a nice place to be, winning in Regina on the weekend. The Rough Riders now have gone into that vaunted area of losing streaks where you see them lose five in a row at home. The Elks, of course, have lost six in a row at home. The Red Blacks have done the same. Difference is, is that those teams haven't won at home all season. A significant issue for Edmonton especially because Chris Jones, who's the winning coach on this last venture into Regina is looking at that next home date that they have, which is against the Montreal Alouettes. Now, granted, it's a couple weeks away. The Elks can't, for the life of them, understand why they can play so much better on the road and yet suffer a multitude of double-digit losses at home. It almost appears that it's getting in the players' heads a little bit now. The The fact that the Losing streak at home has now stretched into double digits. I believe they're at 14 games without a home win now. Any team that goes through streaks like this 
the monkey on their back just gets bigger and bigger and bigger as it goes on. Once they finally do get a win at home, I believe more will follow quickly. It's the hardest part is getting that first one. And we see the Ottawa Red Blacks in a similar situation in that they haven't won now this season at home either. And that doubt starts to pile up. One thing we are seeing in Edmonton, unfortunately, is the crowd sizes are pretty inconsistent as well. I, I wouldn't say they're, they've all been small because they have had some good home crowds as well. But it appears that that fan base is equally frustrated as the team is at this point. You could definitely see that with, as you said, the the variable crowd sizes. Ottawa, there seems to be still that energy there that the team's support is still strong. Edmonton, not so much. In Saskatchewan now, we've seen the Rough Riders get booed on their home turf for the second time this season rather lustily. The team is starting to wonder, as espoused by their quarterback, Cody Fajardo, is the world against this? And it's a really interesting sort of way to look at it. If the crowd at home is booing you, it may be quarterback play, it may be the fact that the offense isn't doing anything, or it may be that the other team is in control of the game. It has to be tough for the players to hear the fans booing. On the flip side, it shows the fans are engaged and that they care. The last thing you want is a quiet stadium and fans turning away from the team and you don't get that crowd. I've certainly matured over the years as far as my game day experience in cheering for teams and and. I also had the life experience of living through some very dark days for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers where they were getting blown out by double digits at home on a fairly consistent basis as well. So I can empathize with the Rough Riders fans and what they are going through at this point. And all I can say is keep the passion and keep showing that you care. Things will get better. We know there is a lot of talent on that Saskatchewan Rough Riders team, and it's just finding the right fit, be it with the coaching staff, the players, maybe a few missing pieces to the puzzle, but it's not going to be these dark days forever. It may not be, but in the interim, when a fan base hears that the quarterback thinks that the world is against the team, it does raise some eyebrows and it makes you wonder what is going on in that locker room that they feel so, for want of a better word, persecuted. Why is it that this team feels this way? You don't hear that from Ottawa, who's struggled at home. Edmonton, you don't hear it from. And yet, here it is, Saskatchewan. Now, why, why is it happening there? What's the problem that there's such a disconnect? And why is it that a player would even feel the need to come in front of a reporter and say, it's kind of like the world is against us. This is a very, very strong statement, and it's a bit odd. Rough Rider fans are undoubtedly a very passionate fan base. We know the Grey Cup game is going to be in Regina this year. There is some added pressure in that regard as well with the expectations heaped on the team hosting the Grey Cup. We know famously that they won in 2013 when the Grey Cup was in Regina and people are looking at that as the shining moment that they want to relive and revisit. This in a way harkens back to 
the old 72 Summit Series between the Canadian and Russian hockey teams where you had Phil Esposito expressing his frustration at the crowd's booing as well. And, and that stems from the same situation of the expectation heaped on that team to succeed and any bit of controversy and any bit of struggle, the fans do not get what they are hoping for and that they believe they should be seeing. And that's where that frustration is coming from by, and certainly not every Rough Rider fan, but a, a vocal group of Rough Rider fans at that last game. For Canadians, of course, that Summons series, it's coming up on its 50th anniversary. And anyone who was around to watch it at the time has vivid memories of that eight-game set. As a player, you you often feel that you're not supported. You often feel that you're climbing uphill. It's nothing unusual. It's just the the idea that you go to the press and you say that out loud is where the demarcation line comes. If Taylor Cornelius says that in Edmonton, what do you think is going to happen there? Fajardo, I know he's a very emotive and he's a very sincere individual, but I think it's sometimes you just have to rein yourself and say, I may think that, but I can't say that. That's a very good point. And you also brought up earlier what is going on in that Rough Riders locker room to warrant this as well. So if the consensus amongst the players is that the fandom has turned against them, it's going to be very tough to recover. And they need to build back that relationship with the fans. Obviously, Cody Fajardo got to a point here where his frustration is getting the better of him. And it is, in a sense, lashing out. And, and you don't want to bite the hand that feeds you in this situation. And, and that is that Rough Rider fan base. So he's got to walk a fine line here and get his point across. But he doesn't want to be in a situation where it further turns off the fans from what they want to see and, and that support. It's either that or you could argue too that maybe he's using it as a way to motivate the team saying, look, it's really us against the world and I've laid it out for us. Now, there are no illusions about this. It's kind of a dangerous game to play. The Riders, to their benefit, I guess, do not have another home game for another month. So at least they can get out of the uh, eye of the storm, in a sense, and play games on the road. But they're going into some pretty tough environments coming up here as well for a, a road team. So if the wins don't come on this road trip, how receptive are the fans going to be on their return to Mosaic Stadium? Well, you've got a coach that's questioning what is happening with his own team, playing under what he thought they would be. Where do they go from here? The Riders started 4-1. and one. They are now 6-8. and eight. Paul Apolise in Ottawa started the other way. He started slowly, but now has built momentum. You don't hear him questioning about where the team is going. Orlando Steinhauer has that question put in his face because they were in the Grey Cup last year. It's amazing how previous history can influence the thought processes and the reactions to how a team is doing. If you fall from grace, the pressure mounts quickly. If you start from nowhere, then the expectations ride with you. And part of that is from how short a season is. 18 games, you lose two or three in a row and you're diminishing your chances of hosting a playoff game, getting into the playoffs. All of those things start to factor in. And you look at the West as a whole 
and how important every game is. We see Winnipeg out in front, Calgary and BC are not that far behind. So again, especially when you cannot convert those home games where you should have that slight advantage, the season starts to slip away and that's what we are seeing happen with the Rough Riders. Three games in the league this past weekend. We start in Regina, where the Edmonton Elks, in front of a 26-9-7-4 crowd of cheering onlookers, defeated the Rough Riders with a 47-yard field goal. Edmonton 26, Saskatchewan 24. Taylor Cornelius, 13-24-237 in a touchdown, leads the Elks to their first win in Regina since 2015. Cody Fajardo, 20 of 27 for 230 and two touchdowns. Biggest play for him was a third down gamble that he took a chance and hit a receiver deep. Shaq Evans with a 42-yard touchdown on a third down gamble. Huge play for the Rough Riders early in the game. Again, Saskatchewan jumps out to an early lead. And again, by halftime, they're pretty much giving it up. If you recall last week, my prediction was it was going to come down to a last minute field goal. Unfortunately for me, I had Brett Lothar hitting the game winner and not Sergio Castillo. Lothar went three of five. Castillo went four of five on field goal attempts. And there's your difference. Goalposts came into play in this game too. Do you blame the kickers for what happened? The wind was kind of swirling in the stadium. The ball was moving a little bit odd. They both hit the near upright when they missed. Lothar course with the extra miss you could point to and say well okay the riders for once outscore their opponents in the fourth quarter but it's not enough but the rough riders had other opportunities and there were times in the game where their offense was almost anemic against a three-man rush and nine in coverage that the elks provided that three-man rush was outstanding for the edmonton elks they put pressure on cody fajardo all game long, got to him, sacked him several times. I believe the final count was eight sacks by that Elks defense. Uh, Outstanding performance by them. You mentioned Cody Fajardo on the third down gamble, hitting for a, a touchdown pass. Another third down gamble, they handed off from the shotgun, which is just a suicide play, in my opinion. They got stuffed and turned the ball over on downs. So some good and some bad on the third down gambles. One thing I will give... Craig Dickinson credit for is he is not afraid to take a chance on third downs even on a a third and two a third and three which puts a lot of confidence in that offense maybe one bad call by that offensive coordinator on the uh, on the run up the middle from the gun both rough rider touchdowns came on third down gambles Uh, Braden Linnaeus a seven yard strike was also on third down Dickinson is not afraid that part of his game He's unabashed about. He will take the opportunities when he feels they avail. The problem for the Rough Riders, a lot of people point to Fajardo and say that the offensive line didn't provide for him against a three-man rush. Now, Edmonton did bring pressure from the halfback linebacker every once in a while anyway. But the bigger problem for Fajardo was facing nine in coverage all the time was that he hung on to the ball far too long. And you could see as the game wore on, he would take his step back, make a quick read, and then he'd tuck the ball down and and start moving forward, typically running into the player that was about to sack him. That I put on the quarterback. You have to buy time if you need time. Your offensive line can give you three seconds probably 
beyond that, it's on you. You're right. It is almost split down the middle on which sacks you would pin on the quarterback and which sacks you would pin on that offensive line. When the Elks are dropping nine into coverage, it's tough to find an open receiver. So if the if that Elks secondary can keep their guys covered long enough, eventually Fajardo's going to not have anywhere to go. And that's where that pressure starts to come in. The offensive line starts to collapse. Either a guy gets by you or you're going to get flagged for a holding penalty. All those things kind of develop. On the other side, Taylor Cornelius didn't have a huge night throwing the ball, 237 yards, as you mentioned, but 93 yards rushing for Taylor Cornelius, including a 56-yard romp where he really outplayed and and deceived that Rough Riders defense and and was a, a great play. He's not the fastest guy, but he's tall and lanky, has a big stride, and can cover a lot of ground. So um, once those options to throw were not there for Cornelius. He wasn't afraid to tuck the ball and run, and it worked out really well for them. Cornelius was huge with his legs in that game. There was another point in the game where he faked like he was going out of bounds, and Darnell Sankey sort of let up, and then he cut back in. It's always a risk you take when you're trying to be kind. (laughs) Sometimes you get duped. I wonder if Jeremy O'Day somehow in some way regrets giving up Ed Ganey. By giving up, I mean he didn't sign him to an extension when there was an opportunity to do so. Ed Ganey was massive in that game on Friday night. Two huge knockdowns in the end zone. That's the type of defense that wins you ball games. Hindsight's twenty twenty, and you you can't sign everybody, as we know in this league. You're going to lose some pieces, and you have to look at the trade off with that outstanding linebacking core that the Rough Riders have kept intact. There probably wasn't quite enough money there. And, and that's why you allow a player that caliber to walk. It's a, a real, real tough situation and a lot of math involved. And sometimes it comes back to haunt you. And in this case with Ganey, I believe that's the case. Could also be Dekeel Williams' contract had a lot to do with that. And they're not getting their money's worth on that one at the moment. Another outstanding performance for the Elks that we need to talk about a little bit is their new running back. Kevin Brown had 14 carries for 109 yards as well, so starting to look like the running back of note for the Elks. Even with the win, unfortunately for the Elks, there is a problem with the magic number that's still left to eliminate them from the playoffs. Any total of Rough Rider wins, Elks losses, that get up to two, the Elks are gone. That's going to be a tough hill to climb. Saturday afternoon, early game. Winnipeg Blue Bombers and the Hamilton Tiger Cats renew their rivalry, appearing against each other in the last two Grey Cups. Winnipeg starts strong, go right down the field, score on the opening drive. Hamilton responds and then light up the Bombers for 24 points in the second quarter and cruise to a 48-31 win. A shocker in many respects, But the Blue Bombers were made to look ordinary by the Tiger Cats. Dane Evans looked like the Dane Evans from 2019. 25 of 32, 327 yards and five touchdowns. Zach Kolaris, not bad day himself, 23 of 34 for 342 yards, two touchdowns and two interceptions. Hamilton looked inspired. Hamilton looked motivated. And the one thing that we alluded to on this podcast 
if you want to beat Winnipeg, you got to go over the top. And Hamilton went over the top. They did a big bounce back game for Dane Evans. I'm happy to see that happen. Not necessarily the happiest to see it go against the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, but we have talked a lot about Dane Evans, where he's at mentally and the struggles he has had this season. So he gave a shout out to the mental health professionals that are working with him as well. I'm I'm thrilled to see that for Dane Evans. I, I like the guy. I never want to see somebody get into that kind of funk that they can't snap out of. So a big, big day for him. Zach Claris's interceptions came at a time where he was trying to do too much to get them back into the game. But to me, the real turning point in that first half was the uh, the fumble, the strip fumble of Zach Kolaris that was returned for a touchdown by that Hamilton Tiger Cats defense really inspired that Tiger Cats team and, and turned things around. It looked to that point like it was going to be a back and forth offensive battle and that defensive score really changed the the look and feel of this game. Malik Carney was the player who was responsible for that. He's one of the guys that has been brought in to replace players that have left for other teams. And Hamilton is starting to show well now that these guys are getting some game experience. Huge for the Tiger Cats to win this game. And let's put it in context. The Tiger Cats are in a dogfight if they want to make the playoffs this year. Where the last two years of season play, they've been so far out in front. Tiger Cats now are down at the bottom trying to get forward. This game, and especially at home, where they'd been struggling, they'd been on a three-game losing streak overall anyway, but they'd also lost to the Argonauts the last time out on Labor Day, and that really impacted upon them, and I felt that they needed some sort of breakthrough game. Now, I believe it was Carla Edwards that was the uh, sports psychologist that was used, and the simple message was, you don't have to do this, you get to do this. Go out there and enjoy the experience. Make it yours. And and it's such a, you know, a pressure lifter off of Evan's shoulders because we saw how much he was bearing the weight of the Ticats failures. Now, some of it was his own doing. Some of it wasn't. One interesting trivia point in this game as well. Had Winnipeg won this game in Hamilton, they would have actually won in every stadium in the CFL this season. They don't get another crack at Hamilton in Hamilton this year. So that record is not going to be one that they will get to carry with them this season, but um, they've now got an equal number of losses at home and on the road this year with one apiece. Winnipeg has lost both games against Eastern opponents going into their bye week. It may be a situation where they were starting to think about that week off a little bit too much ahead of the game. The offense, as you mentioned, played well. They did everything that they could to move the ball, scored 31 points. The defense got burned. They lost Jackson Jeffcoat in the second half of this game. There are a couple of holes on that secondary as well where they've got a a couple of rookies, one of them making his first start, and that seemed to be a, a tough spot. Dane Evans and that Tiger Cats offense took advantage and had some deep strikes, and, and Winnipeg just could not seem to stop them. The nightcap, the British Columbia Lions were in Calgary to face the Calgary Stampeders. No stranger to overtime in Calgary. Vernon Adams Jr. leads the Lions to an overtime win over the Calgary Stampeders, 31-29. to 
Adams Jr., of course, last time, it was with the Alouettes when he did the exact same thing. He stampeders. We've talked about field goal kicking. They had a chance on the final play of the game to win it. They did. It's not often that you see Rennie Paradis miss a game-winning field goal. Uh, there are two occasions now that I can think of. He came up short in a game against Winnipeg last season and this time failed to put the game away. And hats off to Vernon Adams and that BC Lions offense. They came out in that overtime, scored a quick touchdown, got the two-point convert, and put that pressure back on the Calgary Stampeders. And the Stampeders fell just short. They did score the touchdown, but failed on the two-point conversion. And that was the difference in this game. Lots was made by Glenn Suter about the officiating in the game. I thought the officiating was fine. If there was one thing the Stampeders had a chance to do was challenge an interference call where Deontay Ruffin and Brian Burnham were fighting for the football. It looked on the replay, there was no pass interference. Chiding the officials after the fact doesn't mean anything. The Stampeders had every opportunity to challenge it, and they chose not to. You can put some of the blame on the coaching staff for not getting the information in time. Vernon Adams Jr., 25-32, 25-32, 294 yards. Jake Mayer went all the way for the Stampeders, 26-38, 301 yards and three TDs passing. It was sort of that seesaw game. You never felt that either team was going to run away with it. The Calgary Stampeders have been involved in five of the best games that we have seen all season long. Their three-game series against Winnipeg was spectacular, Their first game against the BC Lions was probably the game of the year thus far, and this one came right down to the wire again. So the the Stampeders continue to play exciting and entertaining football. They win some, they lose some. And we talked a bit about Vernon Adams getting one more week to get comfortable with that BC Lions offense, get to learn the receiver's tendencies a little bit. They probably haven't opened the full playbook up to Vernon Adams yet, but they've got enough there. And with those receivers, the weapons that they have, they managed to put together enough to pull this one out. Winning the toss in overtime, Calgary chose defense. It's not a recipe that wins. You point to this game, you can point to the game they played in Hamilton where the Ticats went on defense first. You go back to the Grey Cup last year, exact same scenario. The team that chooses defense first loses more times than not. And it's not just by a minor amount. It's significant. It's about time that you take it by the horns and say, look, we're going to score and we're going to make you come after us. It's about a 70-30 split, I believe, if, if I'm not mistaken. There's enough quantitative data there that these teams need to look at it and start thinking the other way. I agree with you. Getting the ball first and putting those points on the board puts absolute pressure on the other team. It also tells your defense what you have to do. If you go and get a field goal in that first possession, your defensive players know that at all costs they cannot let that other team cross the goal line. It seems to be a big advantage to the team that has the ball first. And at some point, I would think that the coaches will start to lean that way when they win the toss. Another three-game weekend as we go into week 16 of the Canadian Football League here in 2022. 
We open with the Hamilton Tiger Cats in Montreal to face the Alouettes. The Alouettes coming off the bye. The Thai Cats, of course, came in, coming off the huge win against the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Alouettes are two-and-a-half-point favorites in this game, likely because of home field advantage. I would think otherwise it's just a complete saw-off. Now the question becomes, do we see the Montreal Alouettes, the defeated, the BC Lions, and the Winnipeg Blue Bombers? A couple things to note in this one. Playoff implications were into that last third of the season. Montreal is one game ahead of the Hamilton Tiger Cats for second place in the East. So whichever team wins is going to be in a situation where they are starting to think about that second place. The Hamilton Tiger Cats have not won on the road yet this season. We've talked about teams that have struggled to win at home, but the Tiger Cats are 0-6 away from Tim Horton's field. They're getting some respect in a two and a half point spread given their performance last week against the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. I think that does narrow the gap a little bit. I believe this one is going to be a situation where the Tiger Cats build on that momentum from last week. I think it was an emotional and exciting win to beat the Grey Cup champs, the team that has beat you in the Grey Cup the previous two seasons. And it's an opportunity for them to see the playoffs. They have been in that third place position here for a little while and without a lot of hope and it was starting to slip away. So that win last week is going to be huge. We're going to see Montreal not look like the team that has beat Toronto, BC and Winnipeg. This one is the Tiger Cats. Tiger Cats and the Alouettes have split the first two games that they played this year, each winning in their home park. And the other thing too is if Hamilton wins, they've got the season series with the Alouettes. And if they win, they are tied with the Alouettes, as you alluded. And here we go. It's suddenly all bets are off and the race is on. The other curious stat about this is that if Hamilton wins, they're only one back of the Rough Riders in the West. And those two are going to cross paths in Hamilton. This is huge for Hamilton. If they want to be in the conversation, they have to start doing it now. And they can control a bit of their own destiny by winning in Montreal. It's still possible that we won't see a crossover. It was looking a few weeks ago fairly certain that the fourth place team in the West was going to cross over. But as you mentioned, a Hamilton win puts them at five wins, Montreal at five wins, Saskatchewan idle this week is sitting at six. So you start to look at the possibility of the third place team in the East having the same number of wins as the West. And that's all they need to do to prevent the, the, the crossover. They don't have to be better than the fourth place team in the West. They have to have the same number of points. You're right. The requisite part of this equation is that the fourth place team has to have a better record than the third place team in the East. This, I think, will go to Hamilton just because of the confidence level of Dane Evans now that he seems to have unshackled himself from what was happening before. He seems to be freer on the field. The laser pointing that he was doing with all of those throws, some of them through windows that I swear were smaller than the football, but he was on target. And when you feel it like that, even though this Alouette's defense is very strong, and in fact, their defensive secondary is quite good, I do think that Hamilton can dissect it. And 
if they can get their running game working the way they did against Winnipeg, that gives you the opportunity to play action, create some uncertainty. I like the uh, Tiger Cats with the upset. Second game, Toronto and Ottawa renew. Last time they met, the Argonauts went into Ottawa and defeated the Red Blacks. Toronto is installed as a two and a half point favorite. This is going to be another game where does Ottawa revert to the way they've been playing at home or do they find a way to play the way they've been playing on the road? In a way, it's hard to believe that the first place team is only a two and a half point favorite against the fourth place team that hasn't won at home all season. That is showing a lot of respect. I'm not 100% fully earned respect for the Ottawa Red Blacks at this point. I think the Toronto Argonauts come in, take a stranglehold on first place in the East by winning this one in Ottawa. Unfortunately for the Red Black fans, I think that their home losing streak continues. We add another game to this one and the Argonauts come out on top. Ottawa and Edmonton, they seem to be so symbiotic. Both have lost six at home. Both are 500 on the road. It's unbelievable. If Ottawa doesn't win against Toronto this week, then that's it for them. I can't see where there are enough games left that they can do any damage. And then the questions start to be raised. Is Paul Bellapolis going to be there next year? Does Sean Burke look at somebody else because they are underachieving or does he say they've done all right given what we expected maybe one or two wins fewer than we hoped but i think we're on the right track it's a big question in the off season that could be coming depending on what happens toronto is such a hard team to figure out because mcleod bethel thompson takes forever to get going it feels like in a game but once he finds his groove he's dynamite he is and and that could be a a downfall for the Toronto Argonauts in this one. We have seen Ottawa in the games they are successful in often get out to a quick start. It'll be a real battle between these quarterbacks as to which one can get heated up and momentum first. Nick Arbuckle starts to move the ball for those Red Blacks. That could be the turning of the tide for them and and maybe, can I say it, maybe a home victory. It's either that or the Argonauts win their fourth in a row and go to eight wins on the season. Tough one to call. Really tough. The final game on Saturday. The Calgary Stampeders. I love these three-game weekends. I really do. It's one game on Friday, two on Saturday. It's just a nice, nice pace. As I said in a previous podcast, I hope we can see more of this in the years to come, where you play four games prior to Labor Day because you can play Thursdays. So Thursday, Friday, doubleheader Saturday, or doubleheader Friday, one Saturday, whatever you want to work with in your scheduling. And then move to, as much as possible, three-game weekends the rest of the way. I know with buys it's going to be a miserable mess to try to figure it out, but... Just something to think about. If they move the season earlier, I think it would work beautifully. And you can even throw the odd Sunday game in up to and including Labor Day weekend as well when you start to get those four games into play. You could go Thursday, Friday, one Saturday, one Sunday, right through the summer. Why not? Stampeders, the rematch with the British Columbia Lions. Calgary now have lost the season series to the BC Lions. Both losses coming in McMahon Stadium. Interesting stat, the Stamps have only lost to two teams all year, the Lions and the Blue Bombers, both whom 
reside ahead of them in the overall Western standings. It's unbelievable. And they've lost three times to Winnipeg, twice to BC, and there's their five losses on the season. That is an amazing stat. And if it doesn't go their way this week, they're going to be a six-loss team, having only lost to two. It's quite possible that they end up 12-6, and which is a pretty good record in the CFL and have only lost to the two teams that are going to finish ahead of them in the standing. If I'm either one of those two teams, I'd be very frightened of having the Stampeders come my way because always the incentive is with the team that's been beaten. BC is a one-point favorite at home with Vernon Adams Jr. I'm liking the Lions' chances, partly because Cameron Judge isn't going to be there for the Stampeders, and he is a huge cog in that linebacking core. Jameer Thurman is going to have a lot more work to do with Judge out of there. He is. Uh, one thing that I will be fairly confident in saying, but with the CFL, you never know. I believe this is going to be a close one. As I mentioned earlier, those losses to BC and Winnipeg have all been very close and highly entertaining games. I also am going to give the edge in this one to the BC Lions. Vernon Adams Jr. had a good game last week. I think that's starting to build back the confidence for the Lions. They did not look great in those two losses without Nathan Rourke, but they're starting to get a a foothold now. And it looks to me like this BC Lions team by winning this week is going to really have a hold on second place and a home playoff date in their future. If Jake Mayer stumbles in this game, do we ever see... Bo Levi Mitchell back on the field in an attempt for the Stampeders to salvage it. I suppose we could, but at the same time, they're going to be finished with BC and Winnipeg for the season until playoff time. So with the rest of that schedule, I I think it's still Jake Mayer's team and he's driving the bus right now. Incredibly, if the Stampeders lose, they'll still be two games ahead of the Rough Riders. They play the Rough Riders twice. If by some chance that the Rough Riders sweep Calgary at the end of the season, Calgary could fall to fourth. Incredibly, the Riders right now are on that funny line where they are risking not making it into the crossover and maybe finishing as high as third in the West. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Third Down Gamble. Join us again, the Third Down Gamble podcast, audio worth watching. Third Down Gamble uses the expert resources provided by Canadian Football League player and game statistics for analytics game notes, and statistics, and 3downnation.com for news, insight, and in-depth analysis. Please visit cfl.ca and 3downnation.com for the most up-to-date information on the Canadian Football League.